the first chapter of the book of Job ends with success. Job has shown that he does serve God for nothing. He does not serve God because uh, God had put a hedge around him and blessed the work of his hands and increasing his possessions. But remember now that Job has lost his children. He has lost his possessions. He has lost his wealth. And we're told at the end of chapter 1 that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Further and most certainly more important, God has been vindicated. Remember, God is charged by saying that the accuser says, you do too much for the righteous, you are too good to the righteous, such that they cannot serve God for who He is, but rather they only serve God for selfish purposes because of what they receive from you. And God's been vindicated to show that the accuser is incorrect in that, and that God's policy of rewarding the righteous and doing good to the righteous does not undermine and does not subvert the very righteousness that God seeks to foster in his people. And so this seems to be when you come to the end of chapter one to go, okay, problem solved. God's been vindicated. Job is righteous. We're all good. You know, end of story. They all lived happily ever after. And there you go. But As much as that appears to be the conclusion, we see now in chapter 2 that that's not the conclusion of the the problem or the accusation at all. You'll notice in Job chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them and presented himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason." Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Let's stop there in the account of what took place very beginning we see in verse one that these first three verses sound exactly like what we saw in chapter one verses six through eight we see the very statement again there's a day of the sons of god came to present those before the lord and here the accuser comes in and presents himself as well the same situation unfolds where have you come from and again this is not god not knowing what's going on or trying to find these things out but again this is for us to recognize who the Lord is dealing with, that this is the accuser, this is the troublemaker who uh, accuses the brethren day and night before the Lord. And so he answers the same thing, walking to and fro upon the earth. The Lord continues with the exact same response again. Have you considered my servant Job? 
He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And then you will notice that there is one little piece that's added there, a new sentence that's given to us that's distinct from what we saw in chapter 1. And that's at the end of verse 3. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Let's talk about some of the things that we see happening now in the second go around between the Lord and between Satan. First, I think it's important to observe that the Lord again declares the faithfulness of God. If this is a tent peg that we will hammer home again and again and again, we will make a note of it a couple more times in tonight's lesson that we see in chapter 2, that one of the big points that must be made again and again is that Job is righteous and Job is faithful. And now that's only amplified after we see that Job has lost everything. He has lost all of his possessions. His children are dead. God has removed the hedge that was around Job at that time. No longer is he blessed by all these possessions. All of that has been ripped away from him. And yet we see God saying the exact same thing about Job that was said while he was in prosperity and blessing. He is still blameless. He is still faithful. He is still upright. He still fears God. He's still turns away from evil. These are huge things to be able to say, for it is certainly one thing to say them when you are richly blessed as Job had been. He's the wealthiest and greatest man of all the East when this story unfolds, and now he is nowhere near the greatest man of all the least of the East. He's lost it all, and here the same declaration can be made about his character. It is something that has been highlighted again and again. Job is not hypocritical in his faith. He does serve God for nothing. But in the midst of that, I think God says something pretty fascinating in verse 3. When it says there that he still holds fast to his integrity, it's the same word translated blameless, by the way. He's blameless still in the midst of this. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. This is a very interesting declaration because God takes ownership of what has happened to Job. You notice that God does not say Satan did this and God was really upset about what Satan did and now God has to go fix this. This is not a, okay, now Satan comes back and God goes, I can't believe you wrecked him that bad. You know, I'm going to have to undo all this at the end. What do you think you're doing? There's none of this going on that we would suggest at all that God has something going on here within his realm or to his creation that is outside of his knowledge, outside of his rule or outside of his control. And the reason why that is really important is because we are not going to be able to defend God as we look at this book and say, well, Satan did it. And that was outside of God's permission, outside of his ability, outside of his control, outside of his oversight or something like that. And I bring that up because sometimes that is the simple answer that's given to the book of Job. Well, Satan did it. But I want you to notice that God takes all kinds of responsibility for this. He says it there quite specifically in verse 3, Although you incited me against him to destroy him. He takes responsibility for that. And we get a sense of that because of what has happened in chapter 1. We saw that Satan needed permission. 
Satan just did not willy-nilly just say, I'm going to start whipping on people and God's going to have to come along and fix that. We've seen something pretty fascinating that Satan has to go before God and there are parameters that are given by which Satan is allowed to operate that he cannot pass by. That here is God constraining the activity. And we see it again here in chapter 2 that there's a constraining of the activity which again shows that God is in control over the event that is about to happen. It is not that this happens without God's knowledge and it certainly is not happening without God's agreement. And if this were not enough, we ought to pay attention that the very end of the book says the exact same thing in chapter 42 and verse 11 where it says that all his brothers and all of his sisters... And all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. God is shown as responsible to the things that are happening. And it is stated to us in chapter one, in chapter two, and again in chapter 42. Now, here are some things that we need to make mention of in talking about that. We need to observe that we are not given the solution to this problem right here in the book. I know that's what we want. Right here we just want to go, okay, wait a minute, now let's solve the problem. Because the text says Satan did it. Yes, he did. And then God also says, I did it. Yes, he did. And no answer given here of, well, how do we deal with that? What is the answer to those kinds of things? The answer here is not presented, but what we are given is that is not the answer to take away from Job in the first two chapters is to say that God is not responsible. We see both of them described as the ones who afflicted. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind because the book of Job, as we've talked about many times, is not two chapters long. All of the answers are not found in the first two chapters. In fact, I would strenuously point out none of the answers are given in the first two chapters. In fact, all of the questions and all of the problems are presented in the first two chapters. That's the whole intention is we need to set up the problem by which chapters 3 to 42 is now going to be a big discussion amongst all different players about the problem that we see happening in these first two chapters. There is not a solution here. And so as much as we like our 30-minute solvings on television that everything can be resolved within 30 minutes and we will all be done and why doesn't the sermon do that that's not the intention of the text and there is a reason for all of this that is given to us because it reminds us then that the answers to suffering and how God runs the world are not going to be answered and cannot be answered with short easy or cliche answers we've all experienced that It's what Job is going to experience. Job is going to experience a bunch of people coming to him and saying, well, here's the answer. It's as simple as this, Job. Why don't you understand? And you've surely dealt the same way where you have gone through suffering, tragedy, difficulty, questions. And there have been good hearted, good meaning people who think that they have the answer and say, well, here's the simple answer. Don't you know? And it doesn't always work like that. It's not always simple, easy, cliche answers to be able to answer the questions of suffering and how God runs the world. We are left with the problem. And that is the intention of chapter 2. That God does not say to Satan, you did this. God says, you incited me to destroy him. 
And then at the end of the book, God affirms that declaration. What will we make of that? We have a lot of chapters to find out. That's what the book is going to revolve around, is answering the question about God and suffering and how he runs the world. Before we leave these first three verses, we need to also observe something else, that he makes the statement that you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Notice again how the book is emphasizing and highlighting Job is not being punished for his sins. To put it another way, his suffering is undeserved. He has not done anything to bring this upon himself. There's nothing that he has done that you would say he caused that to happen. That is very critical to the book because we're going to read all kinds of good possibilities. The friends are going to come up and say, well, this is the reason why you're suffering. And immediately the first two chapters are telling you, go ahead and mark as null and void. All of the arguments that are presented about Job that suggest that he deserved it or there was some kind of sin or some kind of error, it doesn't happen. It's not the reason behind it. And sometimes people have come to the book of Job and attempted to do that. Well, aren't we all sinful before God? And shouldn't we all be struck down? Shouldn't we all suffer? And we're just lucky that God hasn't done that to us. And sometimes that's an answer that's given. And I want you to see, that's not the answer of the book of Job. If you want to live in that paradigm, you're welcome to do that. But that's not the paradigm that the book of Job is establishing. It is not saying, well, you know, we're all just very grateful that we all haven't got whipped on today and we're all okay. And so there you go. That's not the book. The book just keeps underlining again and again, and here especially, without cause, without reason, this has happened. There is nothing that you are going to point to and say, this is the reason why this happened to Job. And how often we want to do that. How badly we often want to go back in our lives and go, well, here's the reason why. And often it's not ourselves, but usually some outside party that likes to play those games and say, well, here's the reason why you're going through all these things. And we will observe all of those problems when we go through the book as these friends conjure up all of these answers as to, well, here's why you're suffering. And so don't lose this thing in your mind, this key point that the first two chapters of Job want to establish again and again. Job is in extreme suffering and it's without reason. It is without cause. It is without sin. He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. The accusation that is that Satan now gives in verses 4 through 6 is also interesting. And it's a, it's a very astute argument, I believe, when he says there in verse 4, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Basically, people deep down only care about themselves. You didn't afflict Job personally. Yes, you hit him, but it wasn't him. It was all the things around him. You ripped away his possessions, you ripped away his wealth, and you killed his children, but you didn't strike him. And the argument now that the accuser makes is that basically if you strike his flesh, if you hit his body, that will be the breaking point for a human. He will curse you to your face if you take away his health. If you strike him in his bones and hit him in the flesh, then he will cave, then he will crumble. And I think that's an interesting declaration because I'm hoping as you think about that that you'd consider 
That's not an inaccurate accusation, is it? There are all kinds of people that when it comes to their physical health, when they personally get hit with the health, that that does become the breaking point. And now they don't serve God anymore. And that's Job's argument. I mean, Satan's argument about Job. The Satan just says, yeah, okay, but you didn't touch him. And ultimately, people are selfish people. And yes, he lost a lot, but they care about their own bodies the most. So strike the body and he will curse you. And so the question then arises, will people serve God only when their health is good? Or will people still serve God when the good health is removed? This is now the new question that chapter 2 revolves around. If chapter 1 was take the hedge away, take the blessings away, and people will certainly curse you, now the question moves deeper of, well, what if it is a personal affliction? What if it is the loss of health? What if you are hit to the body? Will you still serve God or not? I think verse 6 may be some of the most chilling words of the book. And it's certainly, I think, the most chilling words of the first two chapters. To hear God say, He's in your hand, Satan. He's in your hand now. You can do anything to him. He's in your hand. If something's in your hand, you have full reign, full control over what you're about to do. Just don't kill him. Full reign. He's in your hand. That makes me sick to my stomach to think. I mean, just... What Job is about to experience... And God says, here is the boundaries by which you operate. Everything about him is in your hand. You just can't let him die. Verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The suffering that now Job receives, the affliction that hits him. We made the point last week in looking at Deuteronomy that everything that Satan hits Job with looks like the judgment of God. And this only amplifies that. For back in Deuteronomy, we saw that it said that you would be afflicted with boils and sores from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And the just sinister nature of Satan to use this, 
which would be compatible to a logical thinking of somebody who was a follower of God, and in particular, Israelites who would be reading this book to whom this would be given, would read this and go, he's receiving God's judgment. It sounds like it. It looks like it. Everything appears like it. That's why the book has been so important to tell you again and again. That's not the reason why. But everything absolutely looks like it. And the intensity of his suffering. Here he is with these boils, these loathsome sores that are on the top of his head all the way down to his feet. And all that he is left to do is to be able to sit in an ash heap and just take a broken piece of pottery and sit there in those ashes and just scrape on the painful sores that are on his body. I can't even begin to imagine When you look at verses 11 through 13, keep in mind that when the friends arrive, they do not recognize him. He is absolutely disfigured and unrecognizable by the time the friends come to him. I only have like a small inkling of that one because in my senior year of high school, I came down with the chicken pox. You know, you think by senior year, you must have caught them when you were a baby. Senior year of high school got the chicken pox. I can't tell you the disfigurement. of. I remember looking in the mirror going, I don't even recognize myself because it was so bad. I missed two months of school. It was horrible. And thankfully, that all went away. I was like, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, here's Joe. And look at what he's at. I mean, this is horrifying. To sit there and just suffer... And not only that, by sitting in the ash heap, he's likely sitting on the place basically where the trash was taken out and collected and burned. In fact, the Septuagint reads that way as an understanding of what the ashes are. This isn't just like a little bit of ashes that he's thrown on his head and he's sitting there mourning. But he's sitting out on the trash heap that's been burning and he's just sitting there amongst the ashes and he's just scraping himself with pottery. The one who's the greatest of all these, the one that everybody would have turned to for wisdom, now becomes the outcast. He's experiencing pain, alienation, and rejection. Everything about his life is completely flipped over. And that's why in the midst of this, it is an interesting person that comes into this at the moment. Here he is in great pain and suffering. And now we get to read about Job's wife. And Job's wife, her solution to her husband, and what she says I think is particularly fascinating, is is to be able to say to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity, your blamelessness? Curse God and die. For, For Job's wife now, it turns out toward Job that she now becomes a temptation because if Job listens to her advice, then he would be doing exactly what Satan charges that people would do, is that if you hit their health hard enough, they won't serve you anymore. If you rip enough of their health out of them, They will finally cave in. And notice that is her declaration. And what I want you to see about her declaration is really in many ways in a worldly way, this would be considered a logical response. Now we understand it's not in a godly response, but in a worldly perspective, this would seem to be the logical response. In fact, our own culture is doing the very same thing. If you're in such great agony, we'll have medical physician assisted suicide. We'll go ahead and take care of your pain. If you don't like the suffering you're in, then we'll have somebody take you out of that. 
And that's where she's at with this. She's saying, well, why would you possibly continue on in the midst of the suffering that you're in? But I want to amplify that because it's not really so much about your suffering is so bad. And so why don't you look for an escape? That is going to be a key function of the book. We're going to see Job say that a lot. And one can only imagine why he would feel like that. If this is what I have to endure, I would rather just die than continue on day by day by day suffering in this way. But her point is a little bit stronger than that because what she is telling him is, what is the point of being righteous if this is the kind of suffering you're going to endure? That's ultimately what she's saying. Do you still hold on to your integrity? That's the point she's sticking on. Here you've gone through all of this horrible suffering. Clearly God has abandoned you. What is the point of you continuing to be blameless and upright and fearing God and turning from evil? There's no reason to. Why would you possibly do that? You might as well curse God and die. And I think that's what you see her getting at as she speaks to her husband is trying to understand why would you still be blameless? Why would you still serve God? And so she is formulating in words the very argument that Satan is making. People will reject you and curse you if you take away their health. And now she's putting that as a logical response. Why would you continue serving God if God is not going to do for you and ease your suffering and not cause this, allow this to happen to you? This is the thing that she has in her mind. And I think it's important to understand as well. Notice that his integrity is not questioned by her. She doesn't say, well, you know, it's because of all these things you've done wrong. And that's why you're going through all this. She also admits his integrity and says, you are righteous. And it doesn't make any sense being a righteous person that if God is going to afflict you like this, why are you still righteous? What's the point? If this is what happens to people who are blameless and upright and fear God and turn from evil, then why not just curse God and die? What's the point? Why serve? So she is quantifying the very question and she is stating what seems to be the logical choice as she brings this out. If things are going to be this bad, then why live? Especially why live a righteous life? Why serve God? If God is not going to protect you from these things and keep you from harm and keep you from suffering and is not going to step in and protect you from that, then why would you possibly serve God at all? It's a very strong argument. I want you just to imagine sitting on the ash heap, scraping your sores, and you've lost everything. You have nothing to show for life. And her argument sounds, I think, very valid. Well, why should I continue to serve God if this is how I'm going to be treated, if this is what I'm going to experience? And so I hope that we would consider that I don't believe we should read her words as something that is against Job. I believe she is looking compassionately in Job and saying, look at the condition you're in. What good is it to serve God? Why would you continue in this way? Why would you continue forward in blamelessness and uprightness? It makes no sense because you have lost it all. I think ultimately we could say it like this. She's exasperated that God has not kept her righteous husband. 
in the favored condition he deserves. And I believe, if we think about it, that is very much an issue that Christians deal with. Is, should I not have certain expectations of what God should do for me because I'm a follower of him? And that is her charge, is that why is not my God kept my husband in this favorable condition because of his righteousness? And so death, therefore, seems to be the appropriate response. And that is what she tells him would be the appropriate response. In thinking about that, let me take a moment to take a side point here of of a couple of thoughts that I think is, is particularly useful. Is that in the midst of suffering, death often appears to be the only relief. We will speak a lot about that. In future lessons, because Job is going to talk very deeply about those things. And that is a very real response, is that it seems that this is the only exit. This is the only relief. This is the only way to get out of the pain. And, and friends, this is a common response to suffering. There, there should be uh, a touch of compassion that we would have for people who feel that response towards suffering. This is usually the basis by which people consider or even follow through with suicide is that it looks like there's no other option. This is the only way there could be any relief. This is the only way to end the suffering. The suffering is never going to stop. It's never going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. It is always darkness. It is always terrible. And so I need to end the pain. There's no point to living. And we're going to see Job hit that tone over and over and over and over again. And I want you to see it set up right here is that Job's wife appears to be confirming that concept. This is something that's going to be set forward again and again is that is death the alternative? Is that all we need to look for? It's just let's just end it all. If it gets too bad, let's just stop. And so it puts that question forward as the book is going to go through. It's going to be one of these important sub themes that we will see in the book of Job. And so. Consider as well with Job's wife's response, what what she says to him is that we can't lose sight of the fact that she has been just significantly impacted by all this as well. Uh, She's, except for the health component, has lost her children and lost her wealth and lost her possessions and lost everything as well. Lost the reputation of her husband. He's no longer greatest man of all the East. So she's experienced a significant amount of loss. And I think it's important to observe that because when we talk about suffering, it is very easy to become self-focused, to become self-centered and think, well, this is all about me. And here is Job's wife who is going through a tremendous amount of suffering. And actually none of this has been about her in the slightest, has it? This is actually about God and Satan and Job is the test subject that we've talked about. And you will notice that in the midst of that, all the amount of, excuse the phrase, but collateral damage that has happened to all kinds of people in the process of one individual dealing with the concept of suffering. Ten human beings have died. Immense loss has happened. And Job's wife is also experiencing all that. It is simply a reminder to us that these choices that are made and the things that we experience in life and the things that we go through go far beyond ourselves of what it will have as an impact on other people. And just because we're suffering doesn't mean that it's about us at all. It may not be. And I think that's particularly interesting because Jesus made that 
very point, repeatedly. When we have in John 9, here's a man who is born blind. Why is he suffering? So God's glory can be displayed. You have that kind of answer given again and again, is that it isn't necessarily about you at all. It may be something else altogether. And to just observe that one person's trials really ultimately end up like a domino effect and affect everybody else. I've often talked about sin being that way, that sin is like taking a calm lake and throwing a big rock into it and the ripples go on and on and on and affect all kinds of people, people you know, people you don't know, the impact of sin, far reaching and widespread beyond our vision and understanding. And suffering and trials does the same thing is that the impact that that has on other people is far-reaching. And it may not be you on trial, but through somebody else who is on trial, you are on trial. You go through the trial, you go through the difficulty, and you're going through your own set of circumstances of suffering just because of somebody else's. And you see that happening here for Job and Job's wife. And Job's children. There is a lot that has happened to a number of human beings here. And all this is because of this question about how God runs the world. Let's end in thinking about Job now. Verse 10. Is that a shocking response? I just, how can you not read what Job says there and not be amazed by the faithfulness of that response? Everything she says sounds logical. We might have been tempted in our lives to do the very same thing. And we have seen other people do it. That when calamity strikes, when health is ripped away, their choice is there's no point in serving God. Why continue on? Why be righteous? There's no benefit to me. And Job's answer Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Now, I don't like, that's an accurate translation. A number of translations say evil, but that's not talking about evil in a moral sense. This is not saying that God does good moral things to people and he does bad, wicked, moral things to people as well. That word is also is uh, translated and means uh, adversity, trouble, disagreeable, or bad. And that seems to be the idea. And, you know, this is bad English because you're not allowed to say good things and bad things. But that's ultimately what the statement is. Shall we receive good things from God and not also receive bad things? That's ultimately what it boils down to. It's not about morally right and morally wrong that God then does evil because we know the scriptures. Like in James 1 verse 13, that God is not tempted to evil. He does nothing that is stems from darkness in the slightest. And so it is more that there is going to be pleasant things and good things and there is also adversity and trouble. And the statement that he makes, really imposing this rhetorical question to her, is really valuable because it makes sense. Will we happily receive God's blessings only to turn around and curse God when those blessings are removed? 
That's a very logical thought process. What is the silliness of us being, yay, God, we love God. It's so wonderful to enjoy all the good blessings you give me. And then at the moment that those things may be taken away, we go, well, why are you doing that? That's illogical. And that's what he tells her. You're speaking like a foolish person would speak. That's just illogical thinking. How could you possibly accept all the good that God does and then something doesn't go according to plan, something doesn't go right, that you do receive adversity and now turn around and say, curse God, what's the matter with you? What's going on? He says, who who would do such a thing? But it's an important question for humans to consider as they serve God is do we reject God when life doesn't go according to plan? Oh, I've seen so many people where that is the case. Life does not go according to the vision that we had as young people, children that we thought life was going to go like. You know, we grow up thinking it would be, I don't know what your vision was, married and 2.5 kids in the white picket house and live happily ever after with never a problem, never a difficulty. They lived happily ever after, rainbows and unicorns and all those kind of wonderful things. And then reality strikes. (laughs) And life's not like that at all. And what will you do? What will be the response when life doesn't go according to plan? Do we now turn against God because life isn't what we thought it was going to be? This is the ultimate question that is coming to Job. And Job's answer is no. Of course, we will accept the good and we will accept the trouble. We will accept the good things. We will also accept the difficulties. We accept anything that God is going to give us. Now, I want to do about five applications And I knew that I wouldn't have time. And so I think three of those are next week. (laughs) I just have two because I was already on page four when I was writing this lesson going, oh, that's going to keep us till eight o'clock. That's going to be a problem. So part two next week. Two things tonight. Number one. Suffering is part of what we must expect. In the Christian life. We must expect suffering. There is no kind of Christian who is exempt from suffering. It doesn't matter the quality of your righteousness. How, quote, good of a Christian, unquote, you are. That is going to now exempt you from suffering. There is no basis by which that we could say that you may suffer, but not to that kind of degree even. You come to God as a follower of Him. Expect suffering. Expect tragedy. Expect difficulty. That we are not immune from trials. That we are not immune from suffering at all. We are not immune from difficult things happening. And there is nothing that we would be able to say to God, well, I understand that I may have trials, but I shouldn't have to go through that. There's none of those things. If Job, as a blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil, prays by God, calls Job his servant... 
is allowed to be afflicted to within an inch of his life, then what should we think that God is going to keep us from experiencing? There is nothing. We are very much able to receive suffering. In fact, how often do the scriptures tell us again and again that the righteous can often receive worse treatment than the rest of the world? That by following God, you are actually putting yourself forward as a target for suffering. This makes practical sense on a couple of levels. It makes sense on a practical level in terms of the world. Darkness hates light. Jesus told his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. The disciples not above the master. What they do to me, they're going to do to you. And on another practical level, it makes sense. Who else would the accuser be targeting? The accuser has no reason to make accusations against the world. The accusations are already confirmed. But the target would be those who profess to be followers of Christ. The target will be on them. I have told you that I tell every person that I baptize, that come up out of the water before they get out of the stairs, hardly, I usually say, Now expect Satan to come after you. You've changed teams. Satan's not going to let you go easily. And usually that's what happens. And then usually all kinds of difficulties arise in trying to rip the person away from their faith in God. We must expect suffering. Righteousness and righteous living will not insulate us from it. It will not keep us from it. And we must be able to have an endurance for suffering just by that knowledge, just knowing that suffering is going to come. Don't be blindsided by it. That's what James and Peter are saying in their writings. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And yet we are surprised. But we shouldn't be surprised. They tell us don't be surprised. James says you ought to count it all joy. Peter says, hey, testing of your faith. It's producing good things in you. We need to understand that we will suffer, that we will experience difficulty, that we will experience loss. Which brings in the second point for tonight. If we're going to have the endurance that we see Job possessing here, and and you cannot understate the amazing faithfulness of Job. If I could make a whole other lesson and talk about the faithfulness of Job, I would, because he is astounding. He is absolutely astounding by this part. I think all of us would have been broken down well before we got to the end of chapter 2. Never mind all that's going to happen in 3 to 41. I would have just been tapped out probably in the middle of chapter 1 somewhere. He's an amazing person, amazing what he experiences. How do we have that kind of endurance? How are we able to have that kind of response? I believe the response of what he says here in verse 10 is not only instructive, but it will build up our faith and give us the endurance that we need. Because he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? What he does is he recognizes that everything that we have even down to our health and even down to our breath belongs to God and not us. 
Please notice the two statements that he makes revolves around that. The first one back in chapter 1, Naked I came from my mother's room and naked I returned. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Bless me the name of the Lord. His first statement is, It was never mine to begin with. I came in with nothing and I'm going out with nothing and everything's a blessing from God. And now in chapter 2, he speaks very similarly and says, Hey, if I enjoy all those blessings of God and receive them and it's great, then why should I complain if they're taken away? This is the mindset of great faith to recognize you and I are not owed anything by God. And I think deep down by our attempts of righteousness and faithfulness, we do believe that God owes us something. But remember last week's lesson was the question, do you fear God for nothing? That's what it comes down to. Do you fear him and serve him for nothing? And here in chapter two, we're not owed anything. What God has given you, God can take away. Every blessing, every relationship Every bit of possession, wealth, children, parents, spouses, everything. You can have one day and look on the next. And we would have no right to stand before God and say, now that was unjust or unfair. Everything that we have is a blessing. And we are not owed any of it. In fact... God doesn't even have to give it and take it away. He doesn't even have to give it to you in the first place. Who who said when you were born and when you die, you don't get to just have a miserable life from start to finish? I think it's easy in our prosperity with our American culture that we just presume that there are certain things and expectations of standard of living and the way things ought to go and God has to meet this level of expectation with them. And I want you to see how Job has nothing. He has nothing. It is gone. It is so gone that he is going to beg God to just please put him out of his misery. Because it's gone. Our righteous life does not then compel God to meet any of our expectations... The call is for us to worship God, no matter the difficulty, no matter the circumstances, to have a perspective on life that says, all of these things are a blessing of God. None of it is owed to me. None of it I deserve. None of it was earned. And I can lose those things at any time. And so ultimately, then, can I say it like this? Endurance, then, is submission to our sovereign God, that whatever God gives us, we will worship God and serve him. Whatever it is, whatever we are afflicted by, whatever we lose, whatever we gain, whatever may happen, we will continue to worship God. I want to end by bringing in Revelation 13.10, where he says here, See, he writes to these persecuted Christians. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. 
And you keep reading, it doesn't get any better. It doesn't say, well, you know, now let me make, warm that up any. I mean, that's just it. You're going to die, and I'm calling for you to be faithful. Period. There you go. That's what God calls us to do. You can have it all today, lose it all tomorrow. Will we receive good from God and not also receive adversity? Will we say before God, he gives, he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we serve God for nothing? Do we serve him for who he is? Or do we serve him for good health, good benefits, good possessions, good jobs, all these kinds of things that we have an expectation of life? May we perceive everything that we have as a blessing of God. Cherish what you have today because it may not be here tomorrow. Amen. And enjoy what God's given you. Go ahead and pull your song books out. And we'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. I have three more points. I've got to stop. You're like, hey, stop. Hey, I know. Next, next time. Next time. More, more, more. The offer of Jesus is he's more valuable than all of those things. He's more valuable than good health. He's more valuable than possessions. He's more valuable than marriage. He's more valuable than children. He's more valuable than everything. He's even more valuable than your life. Will you give everything to follow him? That's the call. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. But Jesus says, you have no idea how worth it is to make such a sacrifice. It is so wonderful to serve a God who loves us so much, who carries us through, who will be with us for eternity if you'll follow him and serve him. Will you come tonight while we stand and while we sing?